We're continuing uh, today our series in the letter to the Ephesians, and so if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians 1. We're going to be looking today at verses 13 and 14. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, no worries, you can find this printed in the bulletin as well. Um, We're going to end today, remember we said that the first 14 verses are one long sentence. It's like Paul can't help himself, he's just writing run on after run on because he's trying to describe how rich we are in Christ. He has so much to say about it. Uh, He started uh, by telling us about what the Father did for us, how He chose us in eternity to be His own, and then last week we saw what the Son did for us when He died on the cross to redeem us. Well, here, last but not least, He tells us what the Holy Spirit does in us to save us. Uh, And as we said at the beginning of the service, We must have the Holy Spirit or there is no Christian life. There is not even any Christianity without the Holy Spirit. And so let me read to you verses 13 and 14. In Him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. Have you ever had to wait on somebody? Uh, usually when you, know, you ask a question like that and everybody kind of giggles a little bit, I saw a lot of smiles. Why is that? Because we all do all the time, especially if you're married. And it isn't always the, the woman that uh, you're having to wait on. Sometimes the woman's waiting on the man. That you know, I understand that. But a lot of times it happens to be. Uh, maybe you're someone in here who has been the one who is waited on very often in, in your life. Uh, sometimes waiting on somebody can feel frustrating. Am I right? It can feel um, difficult to endure. But think about it. When you wait on someone, you're saying one or two things about that person. But you're actually complimentary. You're complimenting them by waiting on them. Because you're saying either A, I don't want to go without you. Or I don't want to do that thing without you, so I'm going to wait on you. Or you're saying maybe even, I can't go without you. I can't do that thing without you, so I'm willing to wait however long it takes. I'm going to wait here until you're ready because I'm not doing it without you. Uh, Jesus in the... About for about 40 days after he was raised from the dead, he spent time with his disciples on earth, teaching them various lessons. And one of the lessons he taught them was about waiting. He said to his disciples, uh, boys, y'all are about to go do the most world-changing thing that's ever been done. I'm going to send you out to preach the gospel, the good news, and everywhere you go, you're going to disciple nations. By baptizing people and teaching them everything I told you. You're going to turn nations upside down. But don't do the first thing until you have received the promise of my Father, which is the Holy Spirit, whom I'm going to send from on high. And so stay in Jerusalem and wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And the Bible says after Jesus ascended, they had to wait two whole weeks, ten days until the day of Pentecost. When Jesus finally gave the Spirit and they were able to go. Now, what was Jesus communicating when he says the Holy Spirit is worth waiting for? 
I would argue he was saying the second thing rather than the first. He was saying you can't do it without the Holy Spirit. But I would also argue it also should be the first one. We should not want to do anything without the guidance and the power and the companionship of the Holy Spirit. You certainly can't do anything in the Christian life without him. I'll tell you that. Now, hopefully I'll convince you of that today. But you shouldn't even want to try. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit that God has given is one of the greatest treasures, the greatest riches that he's ever bestowed on us. Uh, Paul, in these two verses, gives us three pictures, three pictures of the Holy Spirit's work. If you'll look at the bulletin today, that's the outline. There are three things that I have outlined there. Those are three pictures. Uh, First of all, he pictures the Word and helps explain the Holy Spirit's relationship to the Word of God. And then the second picture is the seal that's placed on our hearts. And the third picture is the guarantee which is given to us. The Word, the seal, and the guarantee. All three of these help paint a picture of who the Holy Spirit is and what He does. All right. So first of all... Let's look at this issue of the Word. Uh, There in verse 13, you'll notice the main point Paul is making is simple. Uh, If you know how to diagram sentences, which you all remember from sixth grade, right? How to diagram a sentence. I don't think anybody, everybody tunes out grammar. I know that because I used to teach grammar. Everybody tunes it out. But you can diagram this sentence, and here's what it says. In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's the main clause. In him you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The stuff in the middle, the other clauses, are there to help explain how the Holy Spirit seals a person. In fact, it tells you when, specifically when, the Holy Spirit seals any particular individual whom he seals. It says, in him, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... And believed in Christ, it's then that God came and sealed you with the Holy Spirit. So the first issue that Paul wants to bring out here is how the Holy Spirit ordinarily works in people's lives. And the answer to that is simple. He ordinarily works with his word. He ordinarily does not work without his word. Uh, Sometimes, though, we have this bad habit as Christians of driving a wedge between things that God has united together. We have a bad habit of that. Like, for example, Jesus is both God and man. And sometimes people want to emphasize the manhood. Sometimes they want to emphasize the godhood of Jesus. And they want to emphasize one against the other, like one's more important than the other. But in reality, they're both, they're both true. So they're both equally important and they're both united together. Well, the same thing about the Word and the Spirit. Uh, some people pride themselves on being Bible Christians. And some churches are Bible churches. We study the Bible here. That's important. But they look down at people who want to say that they are spirit Christians or spirit churches. And then there are those Christians and churches that say, uh, the Bible is great and all, but the real thing, the thing that you really need in your Christian life is a real experience, an electric experience with the Holy Spirit. And I would say that all of us are missing out if we're arguing that way. Because never in the Bible are we to accept God's word without the Holy Spirit. And never in the Bible does God's Spirit have the habit of working without working through His Word. The two are married. Think about it this way. Imagine you were walking in the woods, just having a nice hike, and you got lost. The nice hike turned into a bad hike. And suddenly night fell before you could find your way. And imagine for a minute, this is before there were cell phones. 
because cell phones would mess up this whole story, this whole scenario. This is back, say it's 1992, and you got lost in the woods, and there's no cell phone. What are some of the things that you might need to find your way? What's that? A compass. A compass would be very helpful. Uh, along, along with a compass, you might benefit from a map. In fact, having a map and a compass would be the best thing because not only do you have a map where north, east, south is and how the park is laid out, but you also have a compass to tell you which way you're facing. But you're also going to need something else. Remember, this is before we all carried flashlights in our pocket on our phone. You desperately need a flashlight. And, and you set out on your journey before it was dark. You didn't intend to be there when it's dark, so you didn't bring a flashlight. If someone was able to drop a map and a compass down, but they didn't also drop a flashlight, how much would that help you? It, especially if it was like, say it's new moon. I'm adding all these things to the story. <laughs> this is also new moon. It's very, very dark. And you're way out in way south Mulberry, right? Where it's extremely dark. The map and the compass itself will not do much good because you will not see it. And you will not be able to see where you're going anyway to tell whether you're on the right track. But imagine someone just dropped down a flashlight but no compass or map. How, how good is that going to do? Well, that's only going to let you see your way through as you wander aimlessly. <laughs> it's not going to help you find an aim and a place to, to head towards. Well, in a way, word and spirit are like the flashlight and the map and the compass. According to the Bible, this is our map and compass. It's actually a spirit-given map and compass, which is given to us. But without the illuminating light of the Holy Spirit shining in the heart, this would be of little use to us because we are naturally in darkness. There is a whole lot about the Bible that rubs me the wrong way naturally. Because I'm selfish and I'm a sinner and I don't like it. It's the Holy Spirit coming to shine and to seal the heart that makes this thing something that I want to understand and want to live out in my life and walk according to. But without the, without the map and the compass, the light of the Spirit has nowhere to shine. That's why he gave the word in the first place. In fact, if you pay close attention to the various phrases that Paul uses in verse 13, each of them is really an expression of an essential work of the Holy Spirit. Let, let me trace out a few of these. First of all, he mentions the word of truth that you have to hear in order to be sealed with the Spirit. Well, the Bible says there would not even be a word of truth if it weren't for the Spirit. Uh, Jesus calls him the Spirit of truth who will lead you into all things, is what he, is what he calls the Holy Spirit. Uh, in 2 Timothy 3, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God to guide the person of God into the way of righteousness. And remember, the word breath and breathed and the word spirit in the Bible are the same word, unlike in English. It's the same exact word. So it's like it says, the scripture came as the spirit of God spirited it out. <laughs> as the spirit breathed it out, so it came. So there would be no word of truth. There also would be no gospel within the word of salvation. The gospel is the word for good news. The gospel of salvation is the message about Jesus. And we're told, for example, in the Gospel of Luke, that every part of Jesus' life was equipped by the Holy Spirit, starting with his conception. Uh, Luke 2, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Virgin Mary, 
And the Virgin Mary conceived Jesus, and she bore a son who was the Son of God. And as that boy grew up, he grew strong in the Spirit, it says. When he went out into his ministry, it says he was driven by the Holy Spirit. It said, as he taught, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Spirit was everywhere in the life of Jesus. Without the Spirit, there would be no gospel of salvation. Also, and this is critical, without the Spirit, there is no hearing of the gospel of salvation. Neither is there believing the gospel of salvation anywhere in the world without the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in uh, Romans 10, for example, it says, How can someone believe in someone that they haven't ever heard of? And then it says, How can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how can they preach unless someone's sent to preach? And so right there, you know, Paul is giving us a little diagram of how the Holy Spirit works. He gives the word. He equips people to proclaim the word to the rest of the people of God so that everybody can hear it so that as we hear it, the Holy Spirit would create in our hearts faith, which is why the Bible calls faith a gift. It's not something you produce. It's not just merely that you decide, I'm going to believe in Jesus. I just decided I'm going to do it. You do decide to believe in Jesus, but you decide because the Spirit has shined a light the Spirit has changed your heart and softened it so that you're ready to receive with faith what someone is proclaiming to you. Do, you. do you see what Paul is doing? He is showing you why not only can you not do anything without the Holy Spirit, but you shouldn't want to do anything without the Holy Spirit. Even faith itself, the Word itself, comes from Him. If you want to know this morning kind of where you stand with God, the Holy Spirit in your life. Maybe you're wondering, I don't know if I have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. I don't know if I have the Holy Spirit inside of me like this is talking about. Here's a test. Look at your relationship with your Bible and that will show you your relationship with the Holy Spirit. Look at your relationship with the Bible and it'll tell you what your relationship with the Holy Spirit's like at this given moment in your life. Are you hearing the Word? Are you eager to hear it? Do you prioritize it? Do you believe what you hear? Do you, are, are you eager to overcome doubts and objections that come up in your heart when they do? Do you trust in the one who is speaking in the Bible? Do you want to walk and practice what the Bible tells you to practice in your life? I mean, your answer to all those questions is really like a diagram of how you and the Holy Spirit are getting along. Because the Spirit works with the Word and the word is just like a map and a compass in the dark without the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing. The first picture is the picture of the word. But the second picture, which is the main one, really, in the whole passage, is the picture of the seal. The seal. Now, this is not talking about the animal seal. This is the thing that is fixed onto a document or onto a person or some object. Uh, we seal things today. Think about how we seal things. Uh, for example, you have a permission slip for your kid to go on a field trip, and you go get a notary public to notarize it. And the notary public stamps it, and it is an official seal that shows what? It's authentic. Someone witnessed that, yes, this parent really did sign this permission slip and they understood it and I was there to see that they understood it and I am attesting officially to the fact that it's authentic. 
That's one way that people sealed things in the, in the ancient world, too. A, a king would wear a ring often. It had a symbol of his authority on it, and they would melt down wax and put it on top of a letter, and then he would stamp his ring into the wax, and it would make the impression that would dry so that when the letter got delivered, there would be the sign that the king really had put his approval on it. It's a sign of confirmation, of authenticity. But another way, another reason why things are sealed is to mark ownership. Uh, an example for me is I, I love books, and I love books so much that I often share books, but sometimes when I share books, they don't come back to me. And so I thought of the idea, and I'm not calling anybody out specifically. Somebody after first service came and said, All right, were you calling me out about a book that I still have? No, it's not about anybody, but this is just in general. Uh, I noticed this problem, and so I got this little embosser that has my name. And so on the front of all, most of the books I have, I started, I know I'm a nerd, I started embossing the front of my books. And it says, you know, from the library of Stan or something like, you know, with, with my initials on it. That is a, mar- that's a seal marking ownership. So that maybe if you've borrowed a book, you might remember sometime in the future, maybe I should return it back to the library from which it came, right? <laughs> a mark of ownership. People did that back then too. But a third reason why we seal something, think about this. For example, when you seal an envelope, why do you seal it? Why do you lick the envelope and seal it? Security, yeah, so that it doesn't get opened, right? Uh, You seal it so that the contents stay safe, so that it doesn't get lost in the mail, so that the person receiving it, if they notice the seal's been broken, they they might raise a question. Hey, maybe somebody tampered with it, took something out of it. The seal is there to protect. Those are the three reasons one Bible scholar says that seals were used in the ancient world, and that's the same reasons why they're used today. And here it's saying the moment someone believes in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and indwells you, lives inside of you, to do all three of those things both now and forever. He comes to confirm the authenticity of your relationship to God. You really are His. You really are loved. You really are accepted. Right? He comes to confirm and mark that you are owned by God. I don't belong to myself anymore. I've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. My life is his. And he comes to assure us of our security. That once we are in the hands of Christ and and belong to him, we can never be plucked out of the hands of Christ. We are safe in God's care. It's the Spirit's role to take that and to apply it into your heart so that you know it deep within. What a magnificent thing, isn't it, for the Holy Spirit to do? That's the Holy Spirit's main role, to seal, to apply the things that God has done. Uh, In fact, that's a great way to summarize this whole section that we've been looking at these past few weeks. What the Father planned, the Son accomplished, and the Spirit applies. Do you see that? The Trinity is one unity. The Father plans what the Son accomplishes on the cross, what the Spirit now comes and brings and makes yours. Isn't it remarkable that the seal God chose to place on us is not a thing? Like a notary or like a sealed envelope or like my embosser, but it's an actual person, the Holy Spirit, that he chooses to place in residence 
in our lives. What an amazing seal that is. The fact that that the Holy Spirit is a person means that his sealing work can be, well, extremely personal. It can take an objective reality and make it a subjective experience. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, When the notary notarizes something and seals it, when my diploma has the seal of the state of Florida on it and I know it's real, uh, that is showing me that it's objectively real whether I feel like it is or not. If for some reason I bumped my head and I forgot that I graduated from Florida State, I could look up at my diploma and I could remember, man, I don't remember that. Maybe I really didn't. But nevertheless, it says I did, so I did, right? It gives you an objective security. But, but the diploma is not meant to cure amnesia, just to cure amnesia, right? The diploma is meant to remind you of the inward reality, this, the inward assurance that I know that I graduated from Florida State. Not only did I objectively, but I know that I did. You see? The Holy Spirit makes it clear beyond controversy Even if you don't feel like you are one of God's, you actually are one of God's because the Spirit's resident in you. But the main point of the Holy Spirit is to take you one step further and to assure you at the deepest levels of who you are that you are really His. And you know it and you feel it. The Spirit wants us to feel and experience and walk out what God has done for us, rather than just simply thinking of it as a theoretical thing. I remember as a, as a young boy, uh, my story of coming to faith in Christ was really revolving around this. Uh, I think I first you know, came to faith right around seven or eight years old. Um, anybody who comes to faith as a kid knows it's really hard to pinpoint the hour, the time, and all that stuff. And I don't think you have to, to be a true Christian. You don't have to pinpoint that time, right? God's work is mysterious and in some ways untrackable. Uh, as Jesus said, the wind blows where it wants, and we don't know where it comes from or where it goes. The point is that you got the wind in you, not exactly when it came in. But anyway, I, I digress on that. I was about seven or eight, and uh, what hit home for me was I had heard all this stuff. I had been going to church for a couple of years at that point, and I had heard about Jesus, and I had heard that he was the Savior of the world, and then he died on the cross for sinners. But at some point in a church service here in Mulberry, uh, a man came up and prayed a prayer. And he said, Lord, thank you that you're our personal Lord and Savior. Have you ever heard that phrase? It's a very common phrase. If you've been around church a long time, you've probably heard it a lot. And in some ways, it's a cliche now. But at that time, I had never heard it. And so for me, it was not a cliche. It hit my heart. I thought, you know, wow, that's the way it is then. It's not just that Jesus is the Savior of the world. It's not just that he had to die on the cross for sinners. It's that he's my Savior. It's that he had to die on the cross for me. To save me from my sins. And right there, I believe that was probably one of the moments that the Holy Spirit entered and sealed my heart. Because what he did is he took something that was just objectively theoretical and he made it personal he made it real to where I would reach out the hands of faith and embrace Jesus into my life and every single person Paul says who is a Christian no matter how that happened or when that happened that happened 
which is the reason why you have been able to embrace Christ as he was offered to you in the gospel message. Now, to understand the power of this, I think you've got to really, you got to know one thing about the context of Ephesians. I think it's interesting for you to know, but it's also powerful for you to know this. Uh, the city of Ephesus, where Paul was writing, was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Did you know that? Pretty cool. You say, well, well there's a factoid. Uh, how is that helpful to me? Well, the, the, the wonder in Ephesus was the temple of the goddess Diana, or Artemis. And uh, Artemis, or Diana, was the goddess of the hunt, or the night, or the moon. She was the goddess of various things. And her temple was so majestic that it was known throughout the world. Almost everybody in Ephesus worked uh, and worshipped at this temple. And we know one of the things that used to happen at temples like that is believers, when they reached a certain age, would go to the temple and they would receive a tattoo of the goddess or God that they worshipped there that would mark them or seal them for the rest of their life as belonging to that goddess. Now think about that. We know this, this stuff to be true about, the old, about these times. And so imagine Paul saying this, writing this to a group of people who have just become Christians not long ago, who are sitting there in church with the tattoo of Diana on their arm or on their chest. And Paul is saying, I want you to think about a deeper tattoo that you've received. I want you to think about a much deeper mark, one that you can't see with human eye. One that's not on the skin. It's on the heart. It's on your very soul where God took his spirit and he put him into you to dwell forever, to mark you. Whatever the world told you about yourself, that you belong to Diana, that you belong to Artemis, that you must worship her, that if you don't worship her, all your crops are going to be cursed and all that, whatever they used to tell you, don't believe it anymore. Go by the deeper indelible, the one that can't be taken away, that mark that's inside that God has put there. Now listen. I don't think anybody in here has a tattoo of Artemis or any, you know, probably any other god, right? But isn't it right that the world is always telling us different ways of thinking about our identity, our sense of personhood, who am I, how do I discover who I am, how do I express who I am, what's my future going to be like, is it good or bad, should I be worried or should I be happy? The world's always teaching us all these things. And sometimes it's even commanding us. You must conform to the way we say you should think about yourself. Isn't that right? God is telling us this morning, don't do that. Do not listen. Listen to the deeper mark, the personal mark that God has put in your heart through the word of God that you heard and believed. That marks you as loved by God, owned by him to be his servant, and secure in him from now and forevermore. He who began the work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. You have the seal to prove it. That's how you ought to think about yourself, right? Not this other stuff. Uh, and yet that's really hard to do because we're always hearing these voices. They're, in, they're just everywhere. They're, they're in our own heart. So it's not just the problem of out there. It's in here too, right? It's in my heart too. But it's in media. It's in... Everything. I mean, it's in, among our friends, family members, everywhere you look. A challenge of the Christian life is to learn how to be claimed by God. 
before you're claimed by anything or anyone else, including yourself. Big deal. Now, let's move along because time is running out. I had a few other things that I wanted to say there, but I didn't get to them. Come talk to me after if you want to hear them. But the most important question anybody in here could ever ask, I mean, there's no question more important than this. Do I have the Holy Spirit in me? Have I been sealed? Have I been marked? And I want to encourage you this morning, don't rush past that question. Because if what this passage is saying is true, without the seal of the Holy Spirit, you don't and you can't know if you belong to God or not. You are just a wave tossed around by every wind that comes and says, here's who you are, no, here's who you are, no, here's who you are, no, here's where you're going, here's where you're going. The only way to solve that problem is to get the seal. So do you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? Think about that this morning. Thirdly, let's look at the picture of the guarantee. And this, in some ways, is one of my favorites. Uh, This is a beautiful picture of what God does in our hearts. Verse 14, he says, The Spirit is the one who is, he is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Uh, That word guarantee could be translated numerous ways. If you have an NIV, it says deposit instead of guarantee. If you have an ESV, the footnote says down payment. And the word in Greek is erebon, which means that. It's a down payment. Uh, when you give a down payment or receive a down payment, what are you doing? You're taking a portion of the full price and you're giving it in advance to guarantee the final transaction. Isn't that right? Portion of the full price, given in advance to guarantee the final transaction. Here it says, in some way, when God sent his spirit into your heart as a Christian, He was giving a portion of something that you're going to receive in fullness in the future in advance so that you would know that the full thing is going to come one day. Get your mind around that this morning. The Bible says our inheritance as Christians is mostly future. We wait for the inheritance. We wait for heaven. We wait for the purifying of our hearts and the full you know, freedom from sin and shame and all the other things that bother us. We, we wait for the release from physical problems, sickness and death at the resurrection of the dead. We wait for the life of the world to come, the new creation in which righteousness dwells, it says. We wait for that. We don't have it now. We wait for it. But what we do have is the Holy Spirit who is a portion of an advanced payment of that same reality given to us now. Meaning this, the Spirit in you is a taste of heaven on earth. The Spirit in you is a taste of heaven on earth. Not only should you know that you can't live without the Holy Spirit, you shouldn't want to. Because to commune with the Holy Spirit in your life is to taste heaven now. Even in maybe some small way. Imagine this. Imagine you were selling your house, which you might be. I hear that's all the rage these days, to sell the house and buy houses. Everybody's doing it, right? Imagine you're asking $195,000 for your house, and somebody makes an offer, and you get a contract, but a few hours later, your lawyer calls you and says, hey, uh, we received the wire of the money for the down payment, but 
you need to sit down because I got some news for you. They wired you $100 million as the down payment. What would you think? Huh? <laughs> Sold. Hallelujah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, you'd think there must have been a mistake, right? Somebody put some extra zeros in there, and they weren't, probably several extra zeros that they weren't supposed to put in. You may think there's no way that person has that much money. But if you, if you happen to look into it and you verified it really did happen, they really intended to give $100 million and you really did receive it, what would you think? Three things. First of all, they really want your house. They really, really want your house. That's the first thing. There's no doubt about it. They have put it beyond question that they are going to get your house and they want it and they're going to do whatever it takes. The second thing you'd be sure of is they are loaded. They are very wealthy. I, I didn't think they were that wealthy. They're apparently really wealthy. The third thing is I'm about to be loaded, right? I'm about to be really loaded. And I want to tell you, think about this. God wanted to give to his people a taste of heaven to come, and he decided to give the Holy Spirit. What? Uh, he could have just sent us a front parking spot at Walmart, you know, or some tiny blessing to say, this is just a taste, my child, of heaven. He could have sent a lifetime supply of your favorite restaurant. I mean, he could have sent anything, small and chintzy. He could have sent $100 million. But he sent something more. He sent himself to live with you. Such a blessing that Jesus said, you know what? You should rather have the Spirit in you than you would rather have me beside you physically. Because it's better for me to go away physically if you could receive that. And that's what God gave you to assure you of the riches that is to come. Three things you can conclude from that. God really wants me. He's overpaid for me. <laughs> and if you didn't know that yet, please know that. God overpaid for you. He paid the blood of His Son... And he paid the cost of his spirit. He did something that most people would think, that's crazy to do. And then he did it because that was what you cost him. And then he wanted you that much. But the second thing you should conclude is God is loaded. Everything I could ever want or have or need, he's got. It's found in him. He's the fountain of everything. And you should conclude, I'm about to be loaded too. Because all that is His has been given to me by His Son through His Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible says if that is the Spirit you have dwelling in you, make sure you are treating Him well as your honored guests. How's your communion with the Holy Spirit? How's your fellowship with Him? You say, I don't even know what you're talking about. How do you have fellowship with the Holy Spirit? That sounds... Mystical. Well, I'll tell you two things it's not. Okay, that maybe this will help you. Two things it's not. And these, these come straight from the Bible. In, in Ephesians 4, Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit who sealed you for the day of redemption. Don't grieve him. So to have good fellowship with him is not grieving him. And uh, did you know you could grieve the Holy Spirit? Uh, grieve means you call someone grief. You, you're a bad you treat your guest very poorly. And in Ephesians chapter 4, it says we grieve the Holy Spirit when we don't listen to what he tells us to do. 
when he tells us how to put off sin and put on righteousness, instead of doing that, we keep the sin and we resist the righteousness. When we rebel against the voice of the Spirit in the Scriptures, we are grieving the Holy Spirit. Uh, one way to know how you're doing with the Holy Spirit is, are you, are you listening to what He says and putting it into practice? Are you seeking to put sin to death in your heart so that righteousness can be brought to life in your life? Where are you grieving the Holy Spirit? Where am I grieving the Holy Spirit? Very important question. Doesn't mean you're not a Christian if you're grieving the Holy Spirit. It just means you need to repent of grieving the Holy Spirit because He is an honored guest in our in our house, in our temple. The second thing the Bible says you, it doesn't mean is to quench the Holy Spirit, which is something different than grieving the Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 6, Paul says, Don't quench the Spirit. And you may say, Okay, what does that mean? Well, you quench your thirst by what? Pouring water into it. You quench a fire by pouring water on it. It's dousing something. It's like the Spirit is a flame, and to quench Him is to put Him out. And you might say, well, man, this is ironic. A Presbyterian pastor is telling us not to quench the Spirit. Isn't that what y'all do, right? <laughs> Isn't that y'all's thing? No. Notice this. If I could push back a little bit on that notion. Paul does not say, do not quench your spirits. He does, quenching the Spirit does not mean you stop yourself from doing whatever you feel like doing which is what sometimes we think it is. The thing the Bible says is, newsflash, what you feel like doing probably ain't right. You, you, should, you should distrust your feelings most of the time, right? And submit them to the Lord. What Paul says is not quench your own spirit, which you should probably quench your own spirit a lot of times. I know I should. I shouldn't do everything I want to do. Quenching the spirit is about quenching the Holy Spirit by, according to Paul, not rejoicing in the Lord and praising His name, not giving thanks to Him in all circumstances. Look at 1 Thessalonians 6, and you'll see what I'm saying. By not praying without ceasing, by not, but by despising prophecy, right? Or, or refusing to hear what God says to people like me and you. By not carefully listening so that we, we decide what is good and bad and we throw away the bad and we keep the good. Like you're really thinking and discerning through the scriptures. To quench the spirit is to avoid doing those things. In other words, it's like having a guest in your house whom you ignore for days on end. Would you do that? Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, sometimes you want to maybe, you know, with a guest in the house, but... It would not be the thing to do, right? It would not be the hospitable thing to do, to pretend like they're not even there. And to quench the Holy Spirit is to pretend like He's not even there because you're not praying, you're not talking to Him, you're not listening to Him, you're not bending your heart to His will, you're not, you're not open to a relationship because you're closing yourself off to Him. My question this morning is, where are you quenching the Spirit? Where are we quenching the Spirit? By neglect. Whether it's neglect of prayer or neglect of the scriptures or neglect of song and praise and worship. Where are we neglecting the spirit? You grieve him by rebelling and you, and you quench him by neglecting. And if it is true, God has given us such a treasure 
as his very own presence indwelling us, it is the whole duty of the Christian life to make sure we're being hospitable to the Holy Spirit. Or as Paul will later say in Ephesians, we got to walk in step with the Spirit. I love that. Walk in step. We look at him and we see what moves he's doing and then we do those moves, right? Instead of trying to make up our own moves and trying to get the Holy Spirit to dance with our moves, we got to move with his because he's a guest who takes over the house. Isn't that good? The Holy Spirit, not only can you not live without him, you shouldn't want to live without him. 